I think are in your bulletin on what we, what we had last week. But, you know, I've been here at the church. This is, uh, I think I'm finishing up year number 15. And the times that I, the years that I've been here, I'm the most encouraged right now from what I'm seeing happen in our church and all the good things that are happening and new folks that are coming in and the love for God's word that I'm seeing um, in our people. So thank you all so much for being a part of this church and making this place what it is today. Uh, we are in a series traveling through Paul's letter to the Colossians. Today we come to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, but before we get into that, we did some Easter reshuffling. And so I want to go back and do just a little bit of quick review. Uh, we were in chapter 2 a couple weeks ago. And in chapter 2, Paul has been dealing with this subject matter of how the Jewish people uh, locally around Colossae have been giving the local Colossian Christians a hard time. Uh, they've reminded the Colossian Christians that isn't your Savior Jesus? Wasn't he Jewish? Didn't Jesus practice? the Jewish festivals and observe the Jewish Sabbath laws and dietary rules? Didn't he do all those things? So shouldn't you as well do those things? And so this has thrown the local Colossian Christians into some confusion. And so Paul is writing to them partly in response to this. Um, he says in verse 16, I believe it was, he says, that, look, don't let anybody pass judgment on you on these, on these matters of dietary rules and Sabbath rules and all these sorts of things. He says instead, verse 17, he said, all of those things, all those Jewish practices and religious rules and hoops that we jump through were just a shadow of things that are to come, the substance of which is Christ. And so I talked to you several weeks back ago and showed you how Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Jewish Old Testament Jewish system. You know, the Jews wanted to make Make those practices an end in themselves, as though those practices and observing those practices would make them holy. And Paul says, no, all that those things were designed to do was to point toward the Christ, to point toward the Messiah, so that when he would show up, uh, we would recognize him. And so then Paul comes to the end of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23, and he says uh, almost a statement that doesn't seem to belong. Everything that he's talked about so far, he's been getting deep into theological concepts. He's been talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament system. And then all of a sudden he makes this statement. He says, these have indeed been an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. And then he follows that up by saying, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now that is a completely new topic for the Apostle Paul. He is jumping to a, a basically what we're going to roll into when we get to chapter 3 is the what difference this makes of this letter. Um, so he's getting to the practical implications of how do we live for Christ? What does living for Christ look like practically on the ground, everyday life? And so that's where we turn our attention to today. Today. Our text comes from Colossians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 and 2 and then verses 5 through 9. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading from God's Word. And you know why you're standing. I mention this a lot, but it becomes very important with today's message because some of what I'm going to teach today will, um, in our culture will be difficult to hear. Um, and some of us coming from our culture, from the world, that we the world that we live in, coming into this place and hearing some of what Paul writes about will be difficult for us to hear. But I just want to remind us again that this is where truth comes from. We don't have to wonder what God thinks. He wrote it down. This is not your preacher telling you what he thinks. Praise God, right? This is God telling us what he thinks, and I'm just a conduit of that information. So let's share, let's read this together. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verses, verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, let's dive into this together. We'll begin at verse 1. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And where is it that Christ is seated? Christ is seated in heaven. He says to seek the things that are above. So when he says to seek the things that are above, he's talking about things that are in heaven. He says in verse 2, kind of repeats that. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, I've got a slide that I prepared for you that takes these two verses, and it places them side by side so that we can see sort of a comparison between the material in one and the material in the other. And you can see as you look at that, there's some real similarities between these two verses. Basically what we have between verses 1 and 2 is a repetition. Paul is repeating himself. This is kind of like what your mom, and anytime the biblical writers would repeat themselves, they're trying to make, they're trying to say, I'm about ready to tell you something really important. It's kind of like when your mom used to tell you, do I need to repeat myself? No, mom, you do not need to repeat yourself because I know that if you get to the point where you have to repeat yourself, then now I'm going to get in trouble, right? And so the point is, again, when the biblical writers repeat themselves, they're trying to say, hey, this is something important. Listen up. And so uh, what he says is, what he repeats is to set our mind on things above, seek what is above. Which then, again, raises the question of, well, what is above? What is it? Well, it's Christ. It's God's agenda. It's heavenly things. You know, when we look around at the world in which we live, this is a fallen reality. And Paul is saying we can't look at the world in which we live and try to make sense of ourselves and our sense of life. Uh, We can't uh, uh, subscribe our morality. We can't subscribe our purpose in life from what this fallen world wants to give us because we'll just be... Part of that fallenness, we'll just, we'll, we, we need something greater than, something outside of this world to tell us our purpose and our agenda for, for life. And so he says, hey, look, look toward heaven. Now what follows, beginning at verse 5, are two lists. And the first of those lists we're going to cover today. The second of those lists we're going to look at next week. The first of those lists, Paul is basically saying, here's what not to do. Okay, next week we'll look at what to do. Um, and, but Paul's going to begin with what not to do. And so um, let me say with regard to this first list, the list of what not to do, that these are things that are not from heaven. If we do these things, we are not seeking the things that are above. If we do these things, we are not setting our mind on things that are above. You say, well, why would Paul even bother given the list of what not to do? Well, it's kind of like a teacher in school who has students, and they set certain rules, and some of the rules are reminding students of what not to do. Because for some of the students, perhaps, it's not clear to them what the expectations are. And so by telling them what not to do, they're creating a clear contrast between the behavior that is expected and that which is, uh, which is not wanted. Um, So here's Paul's list, verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Again, this list represents the things that are not from above. And the not from above stuff are, here's his list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, um, just to make sure that we all understand these terms, I'm just going to very quickly just do a brief overview of these. I got another slide for you here that just kind of gives a little bit of a definition, if you would, of each of these terms as they appear in the Greek and as Paul intended them. Um, he says, first of all, he says that, um, that uh, he mentioned sexual immorality. Sexual immorality can be defined from a biblical perspective as sex outside of marriage. 
Uh, it also includes forbidden acts. Other places in the Bible, these forbidden acts are listed as homosexuality, bestiality, sodomy, pedophilia, rape, and these are all considered biblically forbidden sexual acts. The Greek word that is translated there as sexual morality is the word pornea. It's where we get our modern term pornography from. These are forbidden acts that the Bible is referring to here. Second item on his list, number two, is impurity. Impurity is the contamination that results from immoral behavior. So I'm contaminated because I participate in these immoral behaviors, and so he refers to that as impurity. Number three, the ESV translates this as passion. Some other translations use the word lust. These are uncontrolled sexual urges. Paul says that's the stuff of earth. That's not the stuff from above. Number four, evil desires. Evil desires are the premeditated thoughts that precede an evil act. Paul says we are to put those things away. This is not sin that just showed up and, and oh, I, I, I stumbled into this. This is sin that we went looking for. This is, this is plotting um, our behavior. Uh, and so Paul calls these evil desires. Number five, covetousness or idolatry. This is basically greed. Greed is unchecked hunger for more. It is an insatiable craving that is willing to sacrifice relationships and run roughshod over people in order to acquire or get whatever it is that we want. Now, Paul's not done yet. He's going to add to this list. Let's go forward to verse 8. We read that a few moments ago, verse 8. Paul adds to the list. He says, verse 8, But now you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then verse 9, one more, do not lie to one another. So let's incorporate these into our slide, into the list, the grand list that we're making here. Um, the first of those is anger. And it appears in the Greek, or as it appears in the Greek, it can be understood as a continuous state of hatred, of smoldering hatred. Anger is not wrong in itself. Jesus got angry. He did. God got angry. Lots of times. Open your Bible, you'll see. God got angry lots of times. Um, God sees an image of bombed out apartment buildings in the Ukraine, and God gets angry, and it should make us angry as well. But this is not the occasional righteous indignation that Jesus um, exhibited when he was turning over the tax collector's booze inside of the temple complex. Um, this is rather a continuous state of seething hatred. The next word that Paul gives is wrath. Wrath is when that seething hatred bursts forth in a violent manner. And God says that wrath is reserved for him. He is the only just judge. He is the only objective judge who sees and knows the hearts of everyone and who is capable of bringing that kind of uh, response. The next is malice. Malice is when a person acts slyly and sneakily with an intent to harm. Then there's slander. Slander means that we defame someone else's reputation, that we deliberately take pot shots at them. Slander is malice in action. Next is obscene talk, or some translations say filthy language. These are words that contaminate both the speaker and the hearer. And this can be more than just curse words. That can be more than just crass talk. This can also include abusive language. I was talking to one of our church members just recently. He said he was around some guys that didn't know an adjective that had more than four letters in it. Um, and he was just saying, you know, I've just heard this stuff all day. And all day they were just, this, the guys I was around just were talking like this. And he said, it just began to drain on me and just kind of brought me down. He said, eventually I just had to put some distance between myself and those guys because filthy language contaminates both the speaker and the hearer. The final item in Paul's list is lying. He says in verse 9, do not lie to one another. 
One former U.S. senator said about lying, ah, here it comes. A lie is an abomination unto the Lord, but it is also a very present help in times of trouble. I thought that was funny and true. Uh, coming from who it came from, but I won't share who that was said that. But anyhow, but we are to put to death deception of others. Lying in any form is not the stuff of heaven. It belongs on this list of earthly, fleshly indulgences. All right, well, that's our passage for today. And so uh, that means it's time for us to stop for a moment and ask the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? I know it's a lot of, uh, a whole bunch felt like you just drank out of a fire hydrant for a moment, taking in all this stuff. Uh, but we want to turn our attention now and, and consider how, how does this impact me practically? Um, the first difference this makes to your life and to mine has to do with the mission of the church, the mission of the church. Part of the mission of the church, that's us, part of what we are responsible for here in this world is to confront the world about its sin. Isn't that what this list does? Paul is confronting the world about his sin. Um, he presents the Colossians with a very specific list of what not to do. He's basically saying, in case you were not sure, in case it was not obvious to you, and perhaps it wasn't. Here are the things that are not from above. Here are the things that God considers an offense to himself. And so he gives them this to-do list, which we'll look at next week, and what we're looking at now, this not-to-do list. He points out both the good and the bad. He points out the holy and the profane. And in doing so, Paul is carrying out the ministry of Jesus. It was Jesus who said to the woman um, who had been caught in adultery, she was brought before Jesus, uh, thrown at his feet, said, Rabbi, what should we do with her? He's drawn in the sand. Finally, he tells the folks that are there, look, let who's without sin cast the first stone. And so they all, one by one, drop their stones and walk away. And then Jesus has this lady standing there in front of him who has just been caught. And uh, she's feeling perhaps the shame of that. And here's his words to her. He says, go and sin no more. Notice that Jesus didn't say, just Go about your life. Continue to do what you're doing. I've got it covered. Jesus said, go and sin no more. He called her behavior sin. The natural tendency in us is we want to emphasize the love of God. And friends, God is loving. God is loving. But we also need to be reminded occasionally that God is also holiness. I'm sorry, God is also holy. The holiness of God presents us with the fact that God has some fixed and fast standards for the way he wants us to conduct our lives. And that's what this list represents. God saying, this is what not to do. I have some things that I want you to do. We're going to look at that. But there's also some things, just in case you weren't sure, just in case it wasn't clear. These are some things that are on the off-limits list. Now, that is not fun preaching. Can we, can we all agree? <laughs> that is not fun preaching. But it is part of the ministry of the church is that we are to call sinners to repentance just like Jesus did. We are to call people to stop the indulgences of the flesh. We are to call people to put to death what is earthly in you. This is part of the ministry of the church to confront the world about its sin. You know, this is not the only list in the Bible of what not to do. There are other lists. And so I want to share just three of those with you 
and then I'll point out a few more if you want to look at on your own time. Uh, one of these comes from Jesus himself. This is Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He's talking to his disciples, and he rattles off a long list of what not to do. And here's what he says. He says, he mentions evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. In three verses, just rattles off this long list. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he rebukes sinful behavior, and he names those who engage in these behaviors. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. He lists off sexually immoral, idolater, adulterer, homosexual, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul offers a similar list, which includes what we've already read and some other stuff, including enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. And the Bible calls all of these things by their common name, sin. It's what they are. It's what they represent in God's eyes, and it's what they should represent in our eyes. So let me ask you this. What if the Apostle Paul, what if the people who are assisting Paul and out there doing ministry and going to Colossae, what if they had never challenged the Colossians to say, what you're doing is wrong? What if they've never done that? What if they just said, you know what? Just keep doing what you're doing. Jesus has got it covered. Where would those Colossians be today? Now, I, again, I know this is difficult. I know this for some of us. This makes us incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> the thought of sharing with somebody that, hey, look, what you're doing is wrong in God's eyes. He sees this as sin. And so I share in that anxiety. I've had plenty of opportunities through the years to talk with people about sin in their lives, and it's never a fun conversation. Never. I, I do not enjoy that. You say, but Gordon, you're a pastor. I mean, you should, like, right? No, I never enjoy that. It's never fun. However, what I know is that um, I don't have to convince people. It's not my responsibility to convince people that they're wrong. That's the Holy Spirit's job. What is my responsibility is to communicate them God's expectations. Share with them the list. Say, hey, look, there's some stuff in your life that's on this list, and that means you're living in sin. Um, what difference does this make to your life and to mine? Number one, the list tells us that part of the mission of the church here on earth is to confront the world about sin. Number two, second difference this makes to your life and to mine is that we can understand what is happening in our world the changes taking place in our culture, the increased depravity in our culture as evidence of the wrath of God. It's evidence of the wrath of God. Flip back with me to verse 6, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 6. Um, Paul says, on account of these, the stuff in the list, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul anticipates a day in which God will judge the peoples of the world. We read about, we read about this in Revelation chapter 20. Um, you have the final judgment. Humanity as human history has come to an end, to a close. Everyone's standing before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account of what we did with the life that God gave us. However, that is not the only time or the only way in which God judges human beings. If you flip through your Bible, you'll see, for instance, after for instance, where God judges both individuals and nations. 
And typically it's because those people are recklessly abandoned and acting out on the stuff on those lists. God judges nations like Edom and Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah. He judges leaders like King Saul and King Ammon and King Ahab, Israel's own kings, because they were deeply entrenched in acting out on what is on that list. So judgment is not just some final reckoning. It's not just something that's going to happen way off into the future. Judgment is also something that God brings into our present experience of life. Everybody with me so far? Okay. One of the ways that God pours out his wrath in the present, in our present reality, is by letting people, by letting cultures and societies who have rejected him, by letting those people fall deeper and deeper into the quagmire of their depravity. Let me show you this, Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, flip over there. You can follow with me on the screen. We find another of Paul's list of sins, the not-to-do stuff, in Romans chapter 1. Um, when you combine, by the way, when you combine all these lists together that appear in the New Testament, they are a perfect reflection of every moral law that is spoken about in the Old Testament. So if anybody ever challenges you, well, you know what? You're just an Old Testament. That's just Old Testament morality. You say, you haven't read the New Testament lists. <laughs> okay? Look at what Paul says. How about, he says about how God pours out his wrath in the present. He says, and you tell me if you see the judgment of God at work around you. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up. Some translations say God gave them over to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. This first phase, if you would, of God's wrath being poured out upon individuals or poured out upon society is a description of a culture where women are exploited and the society at large is not appalled by it. Where the society is exploiting women, that's what you have described here in these verses, and the society is not say, hey, look, this is wrong. Um, the culture had a sexual revolution. So what? It's basically the, uh, the approach. The next phase of God's wrath, verse 26, says, For this reason, now that you've gone there and you continue to go there and you're unrepentant about it, God now gives them up, phase two, to dishonorable passions, specifically their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 27, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Homosexuality is phase two of God's pouring out of his wrath. And the more we see of homosexuality in a society, the more we recognize that God's wrath is being poured out in that society. Verse 28, last phase. And since they did not see fit still to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, that's phase three, to do what ought not to be done. And then Paul rattles off another list of sins. Um, and this list, if you read through them, basically represents, and you can read through them on your own time, but basically this, this list represents chaos coming to that society. That's the key word there, chaos. You read through what Paul lists off there in this third phase of God's wrath being poured out, and the society has basically just imploding. It's falling into utter chaos. Now, all of this is not because God makes it happen. This is because God allows it to happen. 
God says, look, if this is the way you want to live, this is where you want to go, I'll let you go there. And then God allows the fruits of our sins to fall on our own heads. What does the Bible say about this? Galatians 6 and verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so Paul says, Colossians 3 and verse 6, on account of these, how this has become so prolific in your society, the wrath of God is coming. Let this be a warning to the church that when we see the culture falling deeper and deeper into depravity and engaging in forbidden acts, that these are warning signs that the culture is under the judgment or the wrath of God. That leads us to our third and final difference, and that is, number three, we need to make sure that we base our morality on what the Bible says is right and wrong and not on what people say. We need to base our morality on what the Bible says is right and wrong and not what on people say. You know, God gave us some lists. There's, you saw, there's lots of them. He wanted it to be clear about what he considered off-limits, about what he considered a violation of how we ought to live, what he considered an offense to himself. One of the commentaries made this observation, and I want to share it with you. This is what he had to say about where people get their truth from. He writes, The Colossians used to live that way because that lifestyle was normative for their society. People tend to live the same way that others around them live, adopting their standards, values, and ways of thinking. Friends, every week, every week, it's one of the best parts of my week, we stand up, don't we, when we read God's Word. And so, it's, for me, it's of paramount importance that we continue to do that, that we have done that, that we continue to do that. Because it reminds each of us week in and week out of where truth comes from. It's what God thinks that matters. It's not what people think. So let's make sure that our standard of morality is based in what God thinks, not in the standard of what's popular or of what other people think. And I'll close with this statement. It's something my mom used to always say to me. um, Some good old mothering advice. You've probably heard it yourself. And here's what she said. She said, Gordy, (laughs) just because other people around you are doing it doesn't make it right. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for making things perhaps a little more clear for us today. Sometimes we need that. We just need to be reminded of what your expectations are. We are thankful for the cross. We are thankful that when we mess up, when we make mistakes, God, we love you. Jesus, we love you. You forgive us. Yet, Lord, just because we fail doesn't mean we lower the bar. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would use this church as a light in this community that is continuing to fall into greater and greater and deeper and deeper darkness. And Lord, that darkness is going to make some folks hungry for the light. God, give us opportunities. Use us in the weeks ahead to speak your words, not just of truth, but your words of life.
God, we give you this time now as we remember your broken body and your shed blood. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.